Hello and welcome to another episode of Coffee and Conservation, a laid-back podcast where we discuss everything from cool animals, conservation, the environment, and what we can do to help. I'm Robert Pike, a field journalist for the Global Conservation Force, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mike Veal, a world-renowned rhino conservationist and president of the Global Conservation Force. another episode of coffee and conservation my name is robert pike i am co-host and joined by my partner mike veal today we have a very special guest we have scott tregesser scott is the executive director and board chair for the biodiversity group which specializes in um conserving under uh, oh my god i had it hang on keep it rolling uh conserve underdeserved wildlife species and ecosystems improved wildlife nope it was, it was underserved not underdeserved so that's no not- i dude <laughs> Damn it! Okay, keep deserve it, man. That's the whole point. We're going. We're going. Hang on. We they conserve underserved wildlife species and ecosystems. Improve wildlife. Oh, dude, I swear to God, I know. Scott, do you want to do you want to tell us a little bit about Biodiversity Group? Because I don't know how. Yeah, to. Absolutely. <laughs> My pleasure. I'm reading it's so hard. I practiced for three days. Scott. I was really looking forward to this. Oh, <laughs> you know the worst part is because like we've already. This is my second time doing introducing Scott. And I didn't do well the first time. And I was like, you know what? Here we go. Here's here's it's a redemption song. You know, well yeah. relative, man. It's, I'm enjoying it. So yeah, I'm a conservation conservationist, researcher, photographer with the biodiversity group. We conserve life overlooked, which are these species that basically other organizations neglect to conserve, whether because they're too difficult or uh, not enough is known about them or they're just creepy crawlies and they can't fund them. So we kind of pick up the slack there. And um, so we, we call them underserved species and underserved regions. And we facilitate other organizations that also focus on these uh, kind of wildlife underdogs to try to make their lives easier. And then I'm also the uh, uh, co-founder and ex-director of the uh, Creative Conservation Alliance. It was a nonprofit in, it's a nonprofit in Bangladesh. Um, they're doing fantastic work. I've just moved over to focusing on the biodiversity group, but that's how I know Mike Veal through um, getting one of the your guys' detection dogs over to Bangladesh to help us with pangolin research and uh, helping our locate some more tortoises to reintroduce into the wild. It's pretty good. I'd say uh, Robert. I think he's 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 good at uh, introducing himself, but. Uh... I don't know. I, I might have enjoyed the comedy intro so much more. I, I don't know. I just I just, just would just, like to point out for the record, Scott, I do know words. I know it doesn't see, I don't have. Oh, I've listened to the podcast before. I know you know most words. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. This whole, watch this whole podcast. I'm going to be trying to throw in like $10 words, like photosynthesis and like biome. <laughs> Just to let be like, just be like, oh, you know that. <laughs> that's hmm. that's just jargon in, in our field. That's just like everyday talk. Well, I mean, for you fancy folk, but fancy, fancy folk. That's, that's like jargon for us. Well, okay. Well, I mean, I didn't do really good with underserved. underserved. I think it's kind of a hard word. It's, it is a hard not, word. There's not a good one to replace that with unless we, you can suggest one. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty. I mean, I if, you, if you're reading it too, like you probably aren't 
used to reading that phrase. I mean, yeah. Scott, yeah. from from our field's perspective, like yours, yours in particular, um, what are some of the species that are the uh, underserved? What what would the, some of those species be? Yeah, so that's really an excellent question because we don't know. Uh, there's not a lot of data on what really constitutes an underserved species. So it's one of our goals is to kind of define this term, which is currently undefinable. But in general, we're kind of talking about uh, reptiles, amphibians, fungi, invertebrates, like spiders and things like that. Stuff that you wouldn't necessarily think to be like, oh, I'm going to go save spiders or save snakes. But they're all the more deserving because nobody is currently working on them. And they're also this you know, amazing evolutionary work of art that is critical for the ecosystem and is that, and then they're, they're all perishing. So somebody needs to step up. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Like a, the world's scariest and... treasure hunt. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> but I mean, it's important because like, um, in the, in the, um, gosh, what do you say? I guess in the research eyes of science, if a species isn't, if it doesn't have data collection and it doesn't have a population census and a bunch of other details, things go undefined. And so from like our side of the fence and in, in like anti-poaching and counter wildlife tra trafficking, we may know a specific species is in trouble anecdotally. Like we are here, there's nothing, there's species used to be super prevalent. And now we're not finding it anymore, or we know it's always in the trade, but without like a proper um, research and biologist stamp on it, plus the consensus of like, IUCN, there's no bite in our law enforcement or protection efforts if a species isn't categorized as, you know, endangered, critically endangered, you know, all the different factors involved. And so that's where it becomes extremely important, where if there's an underserved species, for example, um, which I would say, I guess, technically pangolins about 10 years ago, up until about five years ago, could have been in that category because there was so much data lacking in so many different population areas, but we knew they were in serious trouble because of the volume we were intercepting them in the trade itself. Um, but it's, and it's not a sexy big megafauna animal, like a, you know, an elephant or a giraffe that demands attention. It's like a crime scene-less crime on, you know, a pangolin side. So, um, Reptiles, birds, amphibians, uh, arachnids, they all fall in the same trade. And if we don't have that same data, especially if the guys on the ground don't know this specific species in trouble, it can make the big difference of stopping a trade issue uh, and having bite with the law enforcement efforts versus someone just gets away with it until finally all the details catch up from government, census, IUCN, the slow well, and yeah, and that's like, so that's one kind of aspect of it, but it's, it's not solely when we're talking about under like overlooked species, we're not only talking about threatened categories. So like ISCN has, and I'm part of several species specialist commissions where we actually go ahead and uh, put out the data and collect the data and assess whether something is threatened or not and what, to what extent. But we can have something like elephants that are threatened uh, or pandas that are, I think they're still, are they near threatened or they're just, they were bumped up to vulnerable? I can't remember, but. Um, I think they got bumped up to vulnerable, yeah. Okay, but it's still a threatened category. But so they're they're still threatened, and they're so they're still faced with the threat of extinction. Though there's so many people working on it that, relatively speaking, compared to something else that might be 
even the same threat in category, but fewer people working on it with fewer data to base any conservation decisions and make action plans off of, then that other species is going to be less, it's going to be more overlooked. So it's not only yeah, sure. an aspect of what the threat in category is, it's how many people are working on it, how much funding is going towards it. Like what is, how is it fared? And like, there's the IUCN green list now, which is talking about how they like the recovery of them is, is going, which is great. Um, so then we're, what we're doing is one of our programs for the biodiversity group is called connect and conserve. And this is just a global database of all conservation organizations in the world and what they're doing. And so with that, we can go and say, uh, we scrape all these public repositories and it's been going on for a while. It's getting pretty intricate, but, uh, we can say, okay, this many organizations are working with this species of frog uh, in, in this area with this kind of conservation approach, whether it's community conservation or research or whatever. And we can actually go through and say for like every species that every organization is working on, what's being done and what needs, and then go and combine, like compare that to the IUCN um, assessments and say, okay, well, we need this more because this is the real threat, but we're actually only addressing this part of it. Nobody know nobody really knew that we weren't that we we're totally neglecting this other side of the issue that so we it's a it's this way of going kind of top down and saying, okay guys, like this this is all what we're doing. We're this diaspora that's kind of not really talking to each other as well as we could be. So we don't know who's working with this hyrax species and when and where and how much money they're getting. But now we we will know and we can say, okay, here's a gap. And this is something that we need to work on. And so now we can say if there's any upcoming up and coming conservationists or somebody looking for a new program, you say, this is what you need. This is what we need right now is somebody working with this in this way in this area. And that's something that I think is really crucially needed at this point. Absolutely. I mean, you know, firsthand, um, there's uh, dozens to thousands of people in certain categories and in that same habitat, um, there might be technically an unclassified uh, arachnid or <laughs> even sometimes reptiles in some of these areas that are heavily populated with, with research expeditions. And, um, you know, it's overlooked because there's a sexy species or a high profile species in the area. Um, I think that's super cool because we, we hit it in a different way in, in GCF. We, we see like... <clears throat> I don't want to condemn anybody, but you see a lot of people almost showboating. Um, they jump on the cause because they think it's going to make them noteworthy or famous. And it's a different kind of destruction what, rather than it's assumed that everybody in this category is working on this type of conservation. But when you actually get to the nitty gritty, uh, some people are just showboating and doing parachute science style uh, awareness things and really the donor impact of the conservation funding is almost negative because it's taking away from the other conservation organizations that are actually doing things. And that's a highlight of like, okay, if there's 400 groups in this area, the size of, you know, San Francisco to San Diego, all working on this one species, what else is being missed? That's totally needed to secure, biodiversity and uh, maybe keystone species aspects, uh, the acquisition and protection of land for wild spaces. And, um, you know, it's, it's a big thing. That's, that's pretty cool. Honestly, it's really, really and cool. Part, yeah. And part of the problem, like you kind of hit it too, with the donor, the donor funding being wasted. A lot of times, not a lot of times, sometimes organizations, and there's some, I'm sure, you know, I'm not going to 
name any names, but there's some organizations out there that kind of replicate other organizations work and then oh, kind yeah. of don't do it as well, but then they're better at marketing and advertising. So they end up getting more money to do something, but then yes. don't really have any long-term approach to something They kind of go in and have this project, make it a little glitzy. And then, and then they're out to the next big jumping on the next bandwagon. Yeah. Uh, happens with pangolins happens with all kinds of things, but so the problem is a lot of the time that it's donor driven, all this funding is donor driven. So we have some, like, that's why our, our, uh, MO here is so difficult with trying to conserve things that are traditionally considered like creepy crawly or not worth our attention because mm -hmm. what donor wants to give a hundred thousand dollars to save a snake species when they could give a hundred thousand dollars to save a panda or an elephant. And there's a lot of reasons why you would want to do that, but, and uh, you need data to support it, I think. And that's where yeah. connectingconserve.org is coming into play. But it's also, we kind of need to change the mentality of a lot of the, a lot of the donors because it needs to be not what necessarily feels good to you. It needs to be what is actually going to be effective and what, and how do you define effective? Like I, I love this, uh, this, um, the concept of these edge species, which are these edge evolutionarily distinct species that it's like selenodons and all kinds of the weird stuff that out there that is this like its own, like Tuatara is its own order. And it's like, it's the only member of it. So it's super evolutionarily distinct. And if you lose that, then you lose like this, you know, 150 million years of evolution or something. And I'd like, so we need, they're all identified, but we also don't know how many people are actually working with these species and how many, how much funding is going into them versus something that's like a subspecies of another one that's going extinct, like the Northern white rhino. Like I, I love them, but the Southern white rhino is, it's another subspecies. Like how much money needs to be spent on conserving a subspecies? It's a good question. I don't actually have an answer, but it's yeah. something that needs to be discussed. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. So I have obviously a big connection to the, Northern White Rhino story, and I had a lot of frustrations in my uh, previous years of conservation efforts because um, I worked on um, endangered species breeding management programs for reintroduction of black rhino and uh, greater one-horn rhino, and of course I worked with the two northern white rhinos. And one of the things that was it was hand in hand. You're excited that they're getting the recognition because a species is going extinct in front of your face and it's it's a, a breath of fresh air and relief to know that the people of the world are tuning into it and putting funding but then when the donor funding in my opinion uh, which isn't everybody's uh, gets utilized to uh, Jurassic Park a species for example you know you got uh, a collection of 16 genetic gen uh, materials from 16 different individuals and we're going to bring back a species and you have uh, 15 or so organizations jumping to do that in a collective of spending almost a hundred million dollars separately from each other. And you look at the need on the ground for the current situation because there's, there are no more Northern white rhinos in the wild. It's, it's very safe to say that there's always been a couple who said, Oh, there's going to be more. And there's been multiple expeditions and a lot of money has been put there. The reality is there's no functional population of northern white rhinos left in the wild. So we have to look at it in a different category now. If we're truly to save the species, the species that's the most um, you know, related to it is the southern white species. If, even if we can say they were broken into yeah, subspecies or you know, there's, there's some arguments in that category too of species versus subspecies differences. And if you... Even if you go down that line, 
if you put a hundred million dollars correct correctly into habitat protection under the umbrella efforts of rhino conservation in the population dense dense zones for southern white rhinos you're saving thousands of species versus if you're only working with 12 to 16 frozen samples in three living individuals there's a big there's a big conservation loss there if it was 50 years ago we had time and space technically speaking to do that and now technically speaking we have the technology to buy ourselves the next 20 to 30 years to work on this even while they're out of the wild but we really need to be focusing on the fire that's the house that's on fire versus the house that already burnt down you know it's this a massive amount of money that could have been in my opinion even though i was the caretaker of two of the last one of the rhinos and i was part of the genetic acquisition or genetic samples and you know all the other things involved in those projects i was happy to do that and don't get me wrong there but once the the funding went from collective management in banking and you know cryo um, cryogenics and all that whole detail of what saving the species was and it moved into this big massive artificial insemination category and multiple teams and then two fractional efforts between the UK and the United States, it was embarrassing because there was a massive need for um, Southern black rhinos and Eastern black rhino populations who are, are still alive, but they're critically endangered as well as Javan rhinos who are still alive and under a hundred members. And a hundred million dollars could build a fortress of conservation efforts for these species, but people want to be, um, you know, they want to be known for X, Y, or Z and the donor funding leverage that opportunity with the public awareness and public outcry. And it's like, there's, there's good to be had in each category, but it's, it's a, it's really hard when you're trying to save species actively that are still in the environment. It's, it's, it's the harder of the two complications or, or calculations, but it's the more necessary one in the wild because without those animals in the wild, we can't do that with every species, bring them back from extinction. It just- Well, the, the, yeah. reason we, well the reason we can't is simply because there's lack of motivation from the philanthropic community. So right. exactly. we, have enough, we have enough money, we have enough resources and knowledge to solve every issue on earth. Like literally, if we, if we wanted to tomorrow, we could endeavor to solve every issue humankind has ever created and we could solve it. And not that, and, but we won't do it because of the lack of incentive. So with conservation, it's we estimate, and I say we, as, I didn't have any part in this, but the somebody else had published a paper and said uh, it's like we, we need something about a, like a hundred billion dollars a year to conserve all species to conserve the and some x amount of habitat. I forget how much it was, but so that and when a hundred billion dollars a year, it sounds like a lot, right? But when you talk about that as a global perspective. And consider how much the U.S. contributes alone philanthropically per year, which is about four hundred and fifty billion dollars a year. Uh, it doesn't actually amount to be this in this this uh, this amazing, uh, fantastical number that you can't achieve. And Robert, uh, I got a quite, I got a question for you. Sure. How much money do you think is being spent on wildlife? Percentage-wise, out of that that four hundred fifty billion dollars that the U.S. gives every year, how much do you think goes toward towards wildlife? 
Well, let's see. 450 billion in the U.S. And the preface, he's never gotten this question before. <laughs> yeah, never, never have I. This is this is the first time I've ever gotten this. So if I carry the two and then I divide by six, I would say percentage wise, I would say about one percent, Scott. Wow. Yeah, you know what you're talking about, man. Yeah. <laughs> so when you bring into the data, it's it's like so three percent goes towards animals in general, and then of that, like that's including domestic dogs and cats and horses. When you cut it down to wildlife, yeah. it's it's about one percent. And then of that, how much do you think goes towards uh, like the the five big NGOs compared to the rest of us? The rest, all of us, like Global Wild Conservation Force and Biodiversity Group, everybody else. Ooh, dang. That one I have never heard before. You actually haven't heard that one. No, yet. I would say, gosh, I want, I want to say like an absurd number, like 80% that goes to the big the big ones. Yeah, it, it's something around there. Yeah, yeah. it's it's really? insane. So, yeah, it, yeah. So this is the data yeah, that we're I mean, collecting. Not, not for that, that, the part that I got too. it right. but So they, they, they end up taking the, the lion's share of all conservation funding. And they do, they they can do great work with it. I'm not saying it's bad, but the the smaller your nonprofit is, the less relative overhead you have, generally speaking. So when you give a dollar to Global Conservation Forest or Biodiversity Group, that goes more towards field programs than the electricity bill. And so your money actually goes much further donating to smaller organizations because we're 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 fueled by passion. We're not fueled by salary. And so that unfortunate for us, because we don't get paid at all sometimes, most of the time. So, but so this is all just saying that um, when coming back to the original question, trying to we have to make decisions on which species to conserve and which not to, because we don't have enough money currently allocated to conservation to save it all. So we have to decide, okay, what's deserving of being saved? What species out there deserves to live, and which one? Do, doesn't and that's a really tough question that you can lose sleep over and when it comes and yeah. you want to save it all like it's not like any species doesn't deserve to live it's just what exactly. can we save and what can't we save and and it's not up to me it's, it's the, not up to, yeah go ahead mike well i was gonna say it's the forced reality that we're in uh, we of course would love to save every species but when you are at the end of the day and you're looking at okay um this species has lost 99.9% of its habitat. They're a fragmented population of s survivors of under this many animals. And in the, you know, relatively the relativity of uh, the entire habitat space, they're, um, you know, kind of a marginal importance. They're not, you know, a, a major player in the landscape versus, okay, hey, this species is doing well and it's part of these key niches in the environment and it's got a lot of coverage with other primary species that we want to focus on so investing here saves this species and these species and this habitat it's a hard problem because like you said we don't have enough funding of course at the end of the day we would say yes to every single species um but tr it's very true the lion's share goes to these massive there's a couple massive organizations and i kind of call them the walmarts of conservation because uh it's it's a it's a bulk product um and there is quality in in some of their projects and they do a good job but when you talk about overhead like prime example um gcf doesn't rent an office space so we don't have to deal for we don't have to pay for 
office space, electricity, um, building insurance and all that other stuff. And that's money that goes to the field directly. Um, whereas like if you work with some of these big, more corporate structured nonprofits, they have hundreds of staff members, they have multiple buildings. Um, they've got, and when I say hundreds of staff members, those people are not in the field, they're in offices. Um, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on and yeah, it's necessary, but the, the tilt of it is, is the impact is much greater in the small to medium category nonprofits um, that really drive by passion. We can literally go out and so I've been running the numbers for the biodiversity group for far less than $10,000. We can go and describe, discover a new species or rediscover something that's been previously thought to be extinct. We can publish it. We can assess it with ICN and we can provide a whole bunch of promotional media to the land manager in order to actually protect that animal. And that's, that's like the huge coordination of efforts and it doesn't cost that much when you no, get $10,000. It's, it's like, it's all going through, it, it's trickling down into the country programs and it's going through their marketing budget and their lawyers and everything else. And you just, it's, it's very, very clear that it's more worthwhile if you don't have some specific project that you're trying to give $10 million to WWF to conserve like an entire piece of land, then it's much better to give to small organizations that you know are doing good work. Yeah. And 10K, for example, on our side, um, that can run six of our conservation canines for an entire year, which is everyday species protection for multiple different types of threats and risks and, and contraband as well as in reverse, it can keep four rangers employed, or no, sorry, excuse me, two full-time rangers employed for an entire year, which is um, six day on, two day off shifts at this current time. You know, there's there's a high impact ratio there and describing a species is extremely important. Um, in fact, it's funny you bring that up, Scott. I meant to, the last time we were catching, uh, catching up, um, I've got a good friend who wants to have a specific uh, species of lizard categorized um in south africa because um this specific species i'd have to pull up its name but it's one of the the, the plated armadillo lizard um guys there's four main species there um anyways it's it's commonly laundered it's commonly caught in south africa driven into zimbabwe and then exported on um legitimate faked per permits and everybody in the reptile industry knows that this giant plated uh lizard only comes from a specific area in south africa and they're very much it's a very small and very specific habitat that doesn't exist outside of that area so it's like i literally just got approached about that um three months ago and i said hey you know it's it's not within GCF scope to do that, but I have a couple people that I could talk to you and I meant to talk to you about it, Scott, because he was saying he would fund it. And I was like, I got to find you the right person for this job. And that's not me. Um, yeah. Let's, let's talk about it after this for sure. We can try to hook them up. So. Yeah. Cause it, but it's, it's important work. Cause you can't, you can't save what's not defined. You can't save what's not described. Like if it's, if it's out there and we don't know what's out there and it's not 
this particular subpopulation we don't identify as being important, then there's no nobody targeting it for conservation efforts, and then it can literally just blink out and nobody notices. Exactly, until and that's forty years down the road, and that's and then we come in, we're like, okay, well now it's we're scrambling trying to find like the last two of the species so that we can save the population and or the genetics and do what like it's just so much harder to go and save something once it like the vaquita once it gets down to ten individuals you're fucked. Like it's, it's so hard. Any one yeah. little screw up is this high profile thing that you should have tried when there were 500 individuals. And now that you killed one, now nobody wants you to do it anymore. And it's like, you, you just waited too long. And, but then nobody really cares enough to do it until there are 10 left. And then to actually give them money is this crisis just from jumping from crisis to crisis. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's exhausting. I know you, I know you know that, but um, it just also, this, oh, yeah. this change this, we need this, we needed to find some kind of dispassionate calculus that claim that put, that directs us into where we need to put the money and where we need to put the effort. We know what conservation, like uh, what kind of what kind of efforts work and which don't for which areas in general. Like we have a pretty good idea. Like conservation evidence, uh, I think it's Cambridge that's doing it. That it's a great resource to, to figure out. Okay, well, you know, we've tried this approach; it doesn't work. So we know what to what works in general, but we just don't truly know what where to direct the funds in the best way possible so that we can save a speed. It's like maybe if you save one speed, like if you save elephants, then that affects a multitude of other species, potentially more so than just saving one beetle. But the one beetle could also destroy like kill the off elephants because like one beetle could be responsible for one species of tree existing, which is provides fruit during a certain season for the elephants and you know what I'm saying. So mm-hmm. it, it's the rivet hypothesis. You don't know what's going to actually destroy the plane when it's flying. So we need more data. And that's what I think really what gets me going when I'm sitting here in, in the, during the pandemic in front of a computer, like what can I do to make a difference? And it was to really gather the data so that we can finally make decisions on in a, in a way that's the most effective and neutral, not just because it's cute, not just because we like it, but we need to save this because it's the best use of the paltry funds that we actually have access to. Exactly. I, I, I agree, man. Um, it's funny. So you're using the example of one species disappearing. So to come back to that one reptile species, that's exactly what's happening because no one can, can identifiably prove under a category that this is a different species of reptile. It's getting pushed through in permits and no one on either side of the fence coming out of Africa and coming to the United States can say, ah, uh-uh, no, that's this, this is, this is a very specific, you know, subpopulation from a different country, red flag, um, you know, and it's going, it's getting decimated and there's not really high numbers of this species. And so um, that's a perfect example there. And then I'm glad you brought up the Fikita. Um, there's some issues involved as well, where obviously this is this is where the politics of NGOs happen, and, and NGO politics is very much like big government politics. Who's in charge of what NGO? Who's got the money at hand? Who's the person in point in charge of the staff? All these things, and unfortunately, even in the best causes and the best efforts, not always they're not always aligned with the best relatable team. So the team with the most money may not also be the most field savvy and they might get put in front of a project. And uh, I remember in 2010, I was invited to go down with several organizations. And this is before GCF 
uh, formerly existed, and this wouldn't wasn't on behalf of GCF. But I was invited to go down and do work, uh, like a, a, a census on Makita. And at the time in there, I think there were like 300 or something left. And I remember the one thing that I knew already about that, and this is these are my early, early conservation years, I already knew that there was high conflict between the fishermen and the vaquita and the gillnuts. And the the uh, life raft method of, hey, let's just go save a species was, go tell the fishermen they're wrong, confiscate their nets, aka their livelihood and their daily food platter, and tell them that they're doing everything wrong and will save the vaquita. And they're forgetting to, to, to acknowledge the community-based conservation factor of these are mob and cartel run fishing villages. They're not just always mom and pop solo fishing expeditions. There's Chinese demand involved, which is a different syndicate family gang structure. And there's cartel money involved. And that includes tiers of government, the wildlife law enforcement, the people actually fishing and all these other things involved. So going down and kicking a hornet's nest the size of a giant skyscraper with your stick that says you're doing it wrong is bound to blow up in your face. And it sucks because, I mean, I do think that if things were applied 15 to 10 years ago in the window back then, not up until more recently, it was possible. But even in the more recent years, there are plenty of people in the wildlife capture and wildlife conservation industry, folks like myself who have um, game capture and relocation experience, who were telling the people who were going to go catch them that they've never successfully lived outside of the ocean in a uh, what's called a rehab tank, a tank that's designed to cycle them out from the ocean then into a larger platform. They just don't survive. They commonly die in the capture process. So even that was flawed, but because there were key individuals and key players who wanted to be right versus wanted to do it right, um, they didn't take the advice of uh, you know a handful of long-standing experts. And sadly, we are where we are now with the Vikita, and that was an ego and pride game. Um, and again, that was something. I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty. Obviously, I look at this from not fighting it every day, but you know, looking at it from 15 years ago, converting those fishing villages into to ecotourism hubs where the same fishermen were doing dive and snorkel and bird and fishing expeditions versus living by long line and gill nets every day would have been the smarter choice to change it because we've seen that work in places like Costa Rica, Hawaii, um, our coastline, you know, the, sorry, California coastline, um, you know, versus come in and just try to confiscate their nets and pick fights with locals and come in and then, you know, literally getting people getting shot at, you know, there's a different structured approach in there. I'm sure there were people at that time who had perfect experience from community conservation backgrounds that would have been able to, to really provide a key strategy versus let's just go in and catch them all and put them in tanks. And then what, and then what? And then we're going to move them to somewhere else where we've got to transport them, but we don't know how we're going to transport them yet. And, you know, it's, it's the, that's where the, that's where the, the big problem comes in with a flush of funding with depending on who's got it and how it's being managed. And it gets very complicated, very quick. Basically. Well, sometimes that flush of funding is also has these stipulations attached to it where 
you have to spend it in X, Y, and Z way. And yes. doesn't matter if renting a car is more a, a more sensible approach. You have to literally buy the car. It's like okay, here's fifty thousand dollars that we just wasted in spending instead of spending five thousand, but that's what the donor mandated. And I mean, it's it's just a systemic issue with I think just humans in general. But uh, it's it's really I really just believe in giving. You, you you get it like in the grant process you, you get the grant you say okay well this this is what their general their approach is but it's really it's funding the individual i think is what is the most effective yes. approach in most ways because the, the individual knows what's going on the most like it, it, in that certain in that local area and with his program so he knows how he or she knows how to spend that money the best way possible so just, it's funding and supporting the individuals which is what i found was my kind of niche in the conservation realm because I'm unfortunately just a, a white American male. I can't go and really have a, it's not easy for us to go and have in situ programs in other countries. And, and that's, I'm not necessarily complaining about that, but it's just the way it is. So I have to like with Bangladesh, I supported Caesar Rahman. He's, he's the guy that would do all the actual work. And I would say, okay, you know, this is what we do elsewhere. This is what I've seen. This is, what I know. And then this is how, and how do you want to apply this to your local program and how can I help you the best? So like, how do I leverage my whiteness so that you can actually achieve your, your vision? And that actually worked out really well. And it's been a super successful program. And that's what I've kind of scaled into the biodiversity group now is with, it's just simply facilitating other non small conservationists around the world, basically just them putting a lot of trust into them and being like, okay, well, this, you know, you need this, like in this way, in this time, and I'm going to get it for you. And this is the resource you need. Like we, I can leverage our position as a U.S. tax exempt nonprofit to be able to give you all these financial resources and everything else. And so that's, that's my power. And that's what I, and I'm not going to be the face of anything, like any, anything glitz and glamour because I'm the guy behind the scenes. And that's, that's, that's cool. That's the way it has to be. That's the way it's the most effective, but that's also this common thread throughout all of my conservation work is just what's the most effective thing to do. And I don't think people ask themselves that enough. It's, it's funny you say that cause that's very similar to how we manage our, um, our protection efforts basically. So, you know, there's, um, GCF works with hundreds of anti-poaching units in hundreds of locations. And when we're not funding another NGO 95% of the time when we're doing that, we're going in is we're identifying key uh, independent leaders of that community or that structure, whether it's a, a reserve or an formed anti-poaching unit, and we're we're investing in their success in their structure and giving them guidance from a professional mentorship, and then we stay with them, and we build their project alongside them with them with the leverage that we have from, you know, coming from the United States and the funding and, and the equipment. And that is the most successful way because in reverse, you know, especially in anti-poaching, it would make zero sense to be a, a quote, occupational force coming in and just dropping 200 Americans in Southern Africa and taking over a reserve. One, that would be a lot of red flags too. It, it immediately alienates the locals from the entire opportunity and the livelihood and it exacerbates the problem further. Um, but it comes back to that same question. What, where, where is the most efficient and effective point to start with? And how do I create a structure that's going to maintain longevity? So how does this project survive um, is extremely important when you're talking about donor funding, because you can drop 
you know, we'll use 10K as an example. You could drop 10K on the wrong person and that will blow up in your face. It's not like you just choose a local. You need to choose the right, right. structure and program. And, you know, um, at the end of the day, if we are growing more wildlife guardians and projects and funding those efforts, then we're seeing the success and we're, we're essentially building conservation allies who operate successfully and ethically correct as well, because there's the opposite where it's like, cool, dang it. Uh, we missed out on this funding and it went straight to a print billboard. Um, and this has happened to GCF. Um, we were uh, funding, we were asking for funding for ranger training and we were going to be, be able to facilitate the training of 300 rangers, uh, 300 rangers. I think our budget request was 5,200. It's going to be three months long. You're going to have three instructors out and we're going to teach two course lines. And the coursework are the most important for basic operations in the bush. And that's um, emergency first aid, emergency response. So, you know, you're, you're the ranger in these remote places. You are the ambulance, the sheriff, and the community, you know, social worker sometimes in these situations. So you have to have a, a, a robust set of skills. We lost out to the grant because uh, somebody got a billboard campaign printed for hash or quote awareness. And I remember seeing that and just sighing audibly out loud going, this billboard is going to sit on the side of a freeway outside of the countries of issue. And it's going to equal nothing. It's if anything, it's harmful to the environment in the, you know, the worst case version of it. But I just was amazed at the grant panel that granted that it's like, you have the opportunity one to empower, educate and sustain 300 locals. in it was going to be 18 different reserves across Southern Africa. And you guys chose a billboard campaign. And I'm like, what am I doing wrong? <laughs> like what, what did I do wrong to, am I, did I not tell the story right? Like, what am I doing? And so you know, that's the other thing that where grant funding has to be stipulated can be maddening sometimes because it makes no sense in the actual logical application of funding. You're like, sometimes oh. it just sounds good, man. And it's, and a lot of times it's, that's all it takes. Like sometimes on these grant panels, it's not somebody that has the deep knowledge that, you know, the conservationists do. Unfortunately, you see this, I see the same thing in photo awards and stuff like it. You just, what comes out of these panels is just, you you have to scratch your head and you're like, I wonder why I just, I really wish I was a fly on the yeah. in this discussion. Cause I'm genuinely cur curious how you came to this conclusion. <laughs> yeah. I would love to sit in that room and just hear the questions you guys are asking each other. Just, just to gauge the depth of uh, conservation interaction and, and knowledge. Like, where did you think this was going to be a good idea? Like, but I well, mean, something too that's interesting for me is like when you consider conservation approaches and where you're putting money, it, it's also kind of important to, to see how, how much it's diluted before it actually gets to like that direct actor. That's either you or your ranger or something like that. If you, you give to, if, if you try to put up a billboard in Africa and you put it in the, like an urban area and you're trying to affect poachers that are in a, like, like trying to sway their opinion, like get them to not poach or something that they're in a village that's 200 miles away. Well, the dilution effect of like somebody in the urban setting, seeing this, this billboard and then like 
redirecting how they're spending their money or sharing something on social media in order to that for that to then somehow that idea to then grab a hold of that villager it's just not you you can't expect that to really happen so you have to really just donate as close to the source as possible i guess is the recommendations like yeah. give so that your money goes the best way possible because you, you give your hard-earned 50 bucks that you're like you're really considering how where to put that money you give it to and you want it to go the furthest possible it's you don't give to wwf i'm sorry you, you don't just give that to some giant corporation essentially because it's not exactly. going to be the most effective way and i think a lot i think one of the cool things about this connect and conserve thing that i've been working on and we just had a lot of progress lately so i've been talking about a lot but uh it, it, when you ask somebody where do they want to donate to conservation a lot of times they're going to be like okay well i, I don't know at all where to donate to or, or why it's important or you'll get an answer of well uh wcs or wwf or nature conservancy or one of these big ones and it's not a bad answer i'm not saying it's a bad answer i'm just saying that when they people don't see these other important organizations like global conservation force or creative conservation alliance or biodiversity group that they if they have like some favorite species you know that they, they want to donate to tiger or something but they don't know where to donate that to and they want to do it in india because they had a trip there but they don't know who's working there there was no real easy way to find these organizations and actually be able to compare contrast like see what they're about because our we're conservationists we're not marketing we're not marketers we're not we don't have that web savvy to get the right seo going make sure that we come up in the search above anybody anybody else so connect and conserve also is just a way so if somebody can go there and be like hey i want to donate to aardvarks where the hell do i do that and yeah. so it, and then it comes up with the four organizations that work with them. And so, <laughs> so then you can actually, and then you'd be like, okay, well, these ones look good to me. So it's just an easier way for people to get their money to the right place, which I think is then kind of solving this, the STEM issue of like, just not having enough money in the first place, going to the places that uh, we want them to go. I think that's a really good point. Um, closest to the, the sources is always good. And the dilution factor is really important because you can ask basic questions of like, well, what is this going to fund and what is it going to go towards? You can ask organizations that and the organization that gives you more, more detailed information than you ever wanted is the one that's actually doing <laughs> the specific work. Um, Cause you'll get like, Oh, it helps by doing this. And it's like a two paragraph basic explanation of, you know, example X, or it's like, it can do this, 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 and this. Uh, that's where it starts. You start to realize the impact of your donor funding. Um, it's, I think that's a super cool platform uh, idea because it does help. Because even I'm sure, like Scott, you've had people approach you independently. It happens to me quite regularly. It'd be like someone, someone will come up to me, just like this reptile um, census thing. Hey, can we donate to GCF to get this done? I say, uh, it's not in our wheelhouse. Let me find you the right person though. And then I feel completely like I'm happy to see funding go to good people and good organizations that are doing good work. If that's not GCF, I don't mind at all. Um, uh, in the same vein, I have two friends. They're the same friends that actually um, asked me about this reptile. They're, they want to do lesser species. So um, Zernarthra and that's the, so like armadillo family and um, some, some just like under underserved species actually um and reptiles and uh they asked me in southern africa for example is there a gcf project where we're where we're running our own wildlife rehabilitation facility and i said no 
not necessarily in the past we've used like our trained team members to do training seminars and we've done um you know we've trained staff at different places and pro- pro- provided certain details and helped them build and expand and create their long and short-term release programs so i said there's a better ngo for this and i recommended um the johannesburg wildlife veterinary hospital and their full-time 24 7 wildlife veterinary hospital basically for all of southern all of south africa and so they're also the hub for pangolins to get treated being confiscated through um, South Africa. They go through there and then they go through the African Pangolin uh, Working Group uh, hub of things. And what I realized, though, was even my buddies who they're extremely tuned up um, to conservation efforts, um, they didn't have the connections which allowed them to get to the you know, most on the ground, most direct source of funding. So they actually um, have hired me as one of their conservation directors, essentially for like on on project assignments where they they have funding from their organization and they want to identify a key species or a key habitat. And you know if it's in my network, I will do all the coordination and connections, and then they donate from their organization directly to you know. Johannesburg uh, Wildlife Veterinary Hospital. But what I realized in that context of all of that is something like your setup and your your website would be tremendously huge because he's asking about like, he was asking about aardvarks. He was asking about Cape clawless otters. He was asking about um, several different reptile species and, um, you know, a myriad of the small cats, um, you know, kind of just like a wide throw of like the lesser species that nobody pays attention to um, or if they do it's on a much much smaller scale and luckily you know been working in southern africa for near you know the decade of, of all projects so i know who's doing what and who's good at what and who's got the best operation and most direct funding and if i wasn't there though they could have ended up donating to um you know, a, a, a parent organization of something else, and it would have been diluted three or four times. Um, it could have happened really easily. Um, and and I've seen that from other good intended people with experience. Um, they just couldn't actually find these, you know, hole-in-the-wall nonprofits or small nonprofits that don't have powerhouse uh, marketing or maybe even some of them don't even have a functional um, social media platform. It's surprisingly uh, difficult. Yeah, they yeah. they sometimes only have a Facebook, and, and then that's it. But they're doing great work. But they're but they don't have time to deal with anything other than the actual work. And then so it, there is this real dilemma within conservation where you're the guy leading it, and you're doing everything, and you're exhausted and burnt out. And you like if you don't know how to build a website, then it won't get done because you literally put all your money into you know then getting the village chiefs together to create a community conservation area or something. It's not, it's like, it's always on the back burner of like, okay, well, yeah, I do need a market, but there's not this immediate kind of uh, return on your investment for, for that sort of thing. So it's like, okay, what do, what do I do? Do I keep the guys employed or do I make a website? And so and, until you get past yeah, that, then yeah. it, it's really hard for these startups to do anything. And there's a lot of these other websites, these directories that attempted to do something similar where they just kind of aggregated a whole bunch of, nonprofits together nothing few with like just conservation and at least globally 
Um, it, yeah, it's just like when I when I dove into it, it's a very simple concept, but it's it was not a, there was no simple solution for this. We're scraping government repositories and and going through and my whole my whole personal list of nonprofits plus all of my contacts of their lists of nonprofits and aggregating all together, make sure it's not. It, it was crazy, and we got like ten thousand now. It's and there's probably another. Oh my gosh! There's probably another couple thousand that I've missed, but I every every week I just I'm just reading stuff all the time, and, and I find and I know my database, so I, like I find a new nonprofit name, and so I add it to the list, and it's, it's every week, man. It just keeps growing, which is great. Like it's fun That's to see cool. what everybody's doing. Yeah. I'm gonna have to ask you about some folks in in uh, Paraguay. I've got to do. Um, um, I've, I've been asked to do um, a security and conservation detail down there, and I'm just starting to put the whole thing together. But I, I've not been to Paraguay, so I've got so many questions of my own. I was going to see. I've got to ask you, and I'll check your database to see if you know anybody who's doing good work uh, specifically with the Zanarthra, uh categories down there. Um, yeah, so doing good work is, is 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 another question. Like whether how do you vet these <laughs> programs? That's, that's a, oof, I don't know if I want to get into that. I, I might have some reviews. No. Set up. There's people that say bad things about me and I know they're not true. So what, like, how do I trust anybody's word on somebody else's organization? That's tough. Yeah. I, you know, that's, that comes back to the ego game. Uh, somebody may not like you because you are legitimately better than them or you are the thing that they're copying. So they want to, um, you know, tarnish you because it somehow elevates them in the same category it's like high school drama um, oh man it's a good yeah point. these are the kind of fun stories right like my incidents in bangladesh like my international my last international incident with the this the poop smuggler when I, they, they claimed i was <laughs> smuggling pangolin shit out of the country and that was like my big my big foray and some for some international biotech crime syndicate. <laughs> it's like, guys, I couldn't have had a more altruistic approach with this. I'm like giving you $10,000 worth of genetic equipment and everything. So you can do this yourselves. I wasn't taking anything like they, they thought, I mean, it's, it's pure, well, it's ignorance and ego, which was the problem there. But, uh, they, they thought I was stealing the patent rights to Pangolin, which can't, doesn't exist, can't do it. But they don't know that, but because there were other shady people that had come before them in other countries where the biotech firms did come and like steal genetic patents for certain things and never gave anything back to the locals, they just assumed that some white guy come in couldn't be doing anything just, you know, for their benefit. Why, why would somebody be just nice and trying to do something good for the world? Like that's, it's a sorry state of the world when you have to question that, but man, they, it's gotten oh, yeah. so much trouble with that and almost got arrested. I had to go into hiding, like just because I was sequencing pangolin scat, which I hadn't even found yet, and trying to figure out what they ate and what kind of parasites they had and what the microbiome looked like, so we can save them in captivity. Like it's like so. Sometimes it's just <laughs> trying to trying to do some good work, and, and people just don't understand. They'll just make anything up they can to mm -hmm. kind of further their cause, I guess. Oh yeah, yeah. No, it's it's all too uncommon, sadly. It's really lame too, because it's just that stuff is a drain. It's already like you're saying, like the multiple hats type thing, where a lot of us are wearing multiple hats. Like in one week, I might do something on the website, obviously the podcast. Uh, I'm going to talk to probably three or four different governments, maybe two different law enforcement bodies, five to six anti poaching units, then our teams. I might be setting up an event. <laughs> I might be working with donors on a specific pledge that they have. And 
Which is and, fun, right? But it's, it's yeah, it's, it's fun. It's also draining. <laughs> you get you're exhausted, and then you know, I there's so many things going on at, at every given moment, um, and maintaining it's hard enough. And then when you got someone who's being a bad actor just because, you know, that kind of stuff is just that can be insanely draining. Um, For sure. I mean, it's funny afterwards, and you get great stories, but during in that moment, I mean, you're just I'm my face is blasted on national TV and saying I'm this like get putting my friends into there too and just saying i'm this this horrible person i'm like well this is unreal like what just happened <laughs> you guys yeah. really missed the mark on this one but there's other funny ones too yeah, where they no, think you know, have like radio controlling pythons because we put telemetry devices into them they're like oh can you just bring the pythons out like where's your controller like come drive them out here for, <laughs> so we can sh- show the tourists or they they also like they they uh claimed i was uh poaching smuggling python venom which also doesn't exist. I, I would love it to, but it doesn't. <laughs> so it's just, sometimes you're doing this international work is, is a trip, man. Like you can't get these stories any other, any other way. Oh no, you know, there's, I, I've had my fair share, especially being so far embedded with so many different ranger units and cultures. I've heard many different ways of how to treat a snake bite. And some of them are highly creative. I'll say that. And, um, you understand why the actual snake bite sometimes what's what's that it's more toxic than the actual snake bite sometimes oh oh yeah and then sometimes you just you're like well and you ask the simple questions like well how 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 well has that worked for you oh they die every time oh okay all right well okay well um i'm gonna show you a way or or they survive every time because the snake wasn't venomous in the first place i lived in this (laughs) island called condao in vietnam where they had, they didn't have any vipers, surprisingly, but they had green vine snakes and they have a triangular-like head. So they assumed it was like a viper. And, they, and they're at like face level, so they're scared of them. And they're not going to believe some white boy just comes out there and starts touting that he knows something. So exactly. it was a real, real challenge to get these people to not start killing these snakes at just sight unseen and actually think about it. So, But I would get dragged, like I'd get bit by anything and because I'm holding it in front of the park guards or something. Like this beautiful blue flying snake one time, and the, the Ooh, bright cool. blue—it's it's, it's absolutely stunning. And it, of course, bit me. And it's mildly venomous to like lizards, but it's not going to do anything to me. And these guys—they went—they they just went ghastly in the face. Like they literally thought I was going to die. Like for d- deep in their core, they thought I was going to die. So they're <laughs> they're dragging me. Like two two guys just dragged me to their to, to their ranger shack. Like no, you have to drink this in Vietnamese. Like. And I barely understand. Like, you have to drink this. And I'm like, okay, I'm kind of curious what you're going to point to. And there's this thing on the top shelf that's probably been there for 10 years. And it's just full of, like, heads of things and, like, flowers and bark. And it's, and it's putrid brown. And, like, I think that's going to kill me first. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm pretty sure if I drink oh, any yeah. of that. So the only way to convince this whole island that I did eventually convince the majority of the island that these snakes weren't venomous. The only way I could do it was doing the snake presentations and having the snake bite me in the beginning. And then by the end of the like 30 minutes, I would, I would show everybody, they'd all gasp. They'd be like, Oh my God, he's going to die. This guy's crazy. And at the end of it, I would have nothing wrong with me. And they're like, Whoa. And he didn't drink, he didn't drink the weird tainted stuff. Like what, what is this? And they concluded that the, what, so I'm told they concluded that the magic of the Island prevents them from becoming sick from the snake bites. Either, (laughs) either way they started, they didn't, they, they killed less snakes by the end of it. So I was happy. Okay, well, that's good. I mean, that's a positive outcome for sure. But it is funny because, like, uh, you, I've run into so like I'll have to deal with um, 
you know, uh, the traditional healer. So like a Sangoma who's practicing Muti or, you know, essentially it's a witch doctor and you'll have to either get their blessing or you'll have to, someone's got a curse or there's a hex on something and you've got to work through that. Like, Oh, the reason this keeps happening is because such and such is cursed. And you're like, Oh, okay. Well, what's the curse and why are they cursed and how do you know they're cursed? And you know, like, and then you work backwards and you're like, okay, so um, the superstition is driving this so far that it's actually causing a physical implementation issue of <laughs> something in the project uh, or vice versa. That same person who's the Sangoma or the witch doctor or the local healer has said, this is the way. And you as the outsider could literally have the actual cure, but no way am I going to trust you because you're the outsider. I trust this local healer who, you know, through ceremony and tradition does it this way, even if I get violently sick from it. And this is the way, you know, there's. Yeah. So the only way to get past that is in my experience is to convince the witch doctor that what your remedy is, was his idea and that he can go and actually save people better. So that's like, here, give it to them. I didn't tell anybody about this. Like, you, you know, this now, this way of healing that you just saw in a vision or whatever. I don't care how you explain it but then this is actually going to work better. And if you can convince that witch doctor to do it, you save lives. Oh yeah, absolutely. And then you work, you work through the, the uh, cultural hierarchy um, that's already been there for X amount of thousands of years in some places. Uh, and it's, it's pretty, it's pretty funny though. Cause there have been times where I've had to like negotiate my way out of something that was completely an honor. Like it was an absolute honor to receive, and I'm like, that is literally going to put me flat out for the next six days. I'm going to be like losing liquids everywhere. Like I'm done. Um, and one of which was working in uh, Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan. And in Uzbekistan, getting taken to like an elder's village, we, we wanted to get permission to see a specific area. And they were going to feed me a raw goat's eye, like fresh popped out of the skull. And the tradition is that they feed it to you. The, the, the elder feeds it to you with his hand straight into your mouth. And I was like, oh boy, that's got parasites and all sorts of fun other things written all over it. Um, I'm going to have to figure out how to dodge this bullet. And I had to essentially, I dodged it by drinking camel milk beer, um, like a fermented camel alcohol drink, which I figured was my better chance of the two since like that was processed regularly and it had a, had alcohol content to it. So I was like, in my mind, that might be better. Um, At least but, you like, getting... option, Sometimes you don't get the option. Yeah. Sometimes like, you I'm going to insult the chief right now. If I don't do this, uh, I'm just either going to take this or I got to walk away. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to be violently sick for the next, who knows how long or, Oh, I just got to deal with it. Um, Another one that was kind of funny where we just had to deal with it, you know, separate situation. We, we had to act normal. Um, A couple of team members and I were working on um, securing Intel information on one of Southern Africa's biggest rhino kingpins. And we were sitting at his local eatery. You're you're starting to break up a little bit. Uh Oh, Uh, so we we had to do Intel on, one of South Africa, Southern Africa's biggest rhino poaching kingpins. And we ended up sitting 
while collecting this intel at this Kingpin Syndicate's eatery, like his place to go and also the place he runs. And we had to act normal and he was doing all sorts of like things to test how normal we were. And one of which was like, you know, young dudes with AK-47s walking up and just standing next to our table and hanging out, you know, with a full locked and loaded, ready to go AK. And, and then we're getting served uh, green, green meat. Like it was actually greenish blue um, and it was goat meat. And we just had to sit there and eat it and act as normal as possible and go with the flow. Because if we would have, you know, even caused a simple ripple, like of any changeover, it could have been our lives at that point and what we were doing. Um, and you know that these guys are just enjoying taunting you too. Like they're trying to make you break character because we were in, in the area under the disguise of being an Australian film crew filming a fishing show. And we had to stay to character. Um, if we broke character, <laughs> uh, yeah, we wouldn't be on this podcast right now. Um, but you know, that was totally normal for that area of Mozambique, like eating goat meat. If you've been there fishing before, you know, if you're eating at this place, that's the color of the meat, that's what it's going to be like. And that's what you got to deal with. And, uh, so even act excited when getting served certain things that you're not looking forward to. <laughs> Just to make the things sure we have to deal with. Man. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Get the so job bad. done. But I wouldn't um, have it any other way either. I mean, it's like that's the that's what keeps me going too. You go out in the field and you come back with these horrendous stories, but it's really what like refuels me to go and do it again. I kind of didn't have any stories for the last two years of just sitting in pandemic, and I mean, it's almost driving driven me mad. I'm just sitting here waiting for something crazy to happen in my life. And it's, it's, you go from like a hundred percent to you just kick it down and just start cruising at 20 miles an hour. And you're like, this is boring. Like I want something like, I'd rather go get hoof and mouth disease again. Like what, what, <laughs> just go do something fun, man. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm, I know. I, I agree. I, I getting sit, sitting still is hard for me in general. And then the, the field stories, I wouldn't have it any other way. It's always pretty funny especially with how they come through because you never know what you're going to encounter on these trips. Um, it's just a, it's a roll of the dice. Uh, Robert, what's, what, what have been some of your favorite from uh, the trips? I know you've, Robert has been on some of the, he hasn't been on any of like what I would deem as like the dangerous instructors trips or anything, but he's been a plant part no, of many yeah. of the comical happenings where uh, we've been out in the field dealing with, the mythical tree leeches yeah um oh yeah like anything crazy i remember this one time in indonesia i had a pimple on my nose and mike and our lawyer ashley convinced me there were bot flies so that that was pretty nutty so for like like an evening i was like yep i got bot flies in my face this is sick uh and he was like oh yeah they they come out and they're like three inches big and i was like oh god um so there's that (laughs) They love you, man. Yeah, I'm a big fan. Um, trying to think what else. Um, I remember this one time. I this is my first time in Africa, and I was getting. I, I was, we had hired a driver to take me to, to the airport, and I, it's like a three hour drive, right? And I was like, I'll just pass the time, and I'll ask him what his favorite like, what's his favorite drink? Like, there's got to be this really cool like African drink that he can like lead me on to. 
was like, hey, so like, so what do you, what's your like, what's your favorite drink? And he goes, oh, it's Coca Cola. Like, cool, sick. So I don't. I've, I don't I've asked, I've asked Kevin Bong with this, like, what's your favorite food? They've asked me, and I'm like, I yeah. don't know, pizza, something you're gonna understand. I'm like, yeah. so what's your favorite food? And they're like, rice. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Yeah. I like rice yeah. too. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think. I don't know. Another. I mean, other than we had, I had hot dogs that were like set in the sun for like four days, but that was just because that was just that poor was planning. Christian's fault. Yeah. That was straight oh, up Christian's that's fault. My, that's my um, field work in the U.S. Even. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, for four days in my truck, I'll still eat it. Oh yeah, um, there's, 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 it's, it's not. There's no longer a five second rule when it's in the field. It's like, hmm, it's been about yeah. five hours. I'm gonna go for it. <laughs> No waste. I, I don't know, Robert. I, I'm thinking like um, the, so, the you're, you're breaking up a I little think, bit again. Oh shoot! How's that? Um, Better. I I want to say there have been so many, but I think we've told them all. Like, of course, the the mango yeah. story with Grant Folds, um, the uh, the leech boots when you're in Sumatra, Sum- yeah, northern Sumatra with the guys. Um, the king, the king of the forest. Uh, that when you got crowned. Yeah. Um, Sounds like you guys need to get out. Dehydration yeah. and Sumatra. I know. Yeah, we're, yeah we're there's due. there's always something. Um, there's always something funny. That's for sure. So what you're but, saying, Scott, is we should just go to, to Bangladesh with you. Hell yeah! Let's make it happen. No, there, no, there's no, always a story in Bangladesh. You guys are you guys are creepy crawly guys. You guys are gonna put stuff in my bed. Yeah, but it's worthwhile because like it's pretty hard to find the creepy crawlies. So when you do, you're pretty excited. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, it's like a treasure hunt, dude. It is a treasure hunt. Yeah, there's a couple new ones that we uh, that I found already that we need to find more of, so we can uh, we I have directions. You guys hold them, and I'll, I'll I, you know, I, I gotta say too, like Scott, I really, really enjoy your photography of, you know, your Instagram page and of all like the insects and if you guys haven't seen his instagram i highly encourage it because it's real i geek out over it and i don't like it's it's really good but how do you yeah it's some how really do you cool shots photograph all these insects like you were super close yeah like and people always ask me about the rattlesnakes and stuff like how do you yeah. get so close it's knowing behavior like mike does it's it's knowing oh, when they're going to strike when they're not at least having a good idea of when they would and then having good reactions too helps yeah. um but, yeah <laughs> So you kind of, it's just, you, you do know the animal and I've never, I really haven't come close to getting bit by anything venomous. Uh, I've even stepped on rattlesnakes and they haven't struck at me, but cool. Um, so it's, it's just uh, experience, I guess. It took me a while to, to really start taking good photographs. And then once you kind of get the hang of it and figure out what's, what's, what actually makes it look good and whatnot, then, mm-hmm. um, then it's just fine tuning from there. And I'm always fine tuning the photos. I'm always taking better stuff. And I mean, I, I haven't taken a great number of photos the last two years, but when I, I did have like in t- April, 2020, uh, before everything, well, before I started taking a bunch of jobs and d- didn't have any fun anymore. Um, we went out and I took a, a grip load of gr- really great reptile photographs just cause I, I have a great girlfriend that goes and she can, she's actually the secret weapon, man. I got to admit it. She's a secret weapon. She, she goes <laughs> and really? helps me pose these things and yeah. she's a boss at it. She actually, she does it really well and it's so much easier to have somebody else like be able to bring a stick in there and move the head just a quarter inch to the left mm-hmm. and not have to move the camera away and like scare the animal so then you can just take the photo yeah it's it's, it's just so much more fun to have it like that so it's there's coordination teamwork and it's uh it's also just having fun so when you're having fun you're gonna do you're gonna do a good job at it so for sure 
Oh yeah, the creepy crawly factor too. Like Robert, you're gonna be so screwed. I'm sorry, my friends. It's like, it's it's me. It's 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 like two of me on. I can only imagine in one place with the level of creepy crawly excitedness all mm-hmm. the time. So like the exhaustion that you're gonna face, you, you're gonna need to pack coffee instead of water. Um, well, as long and, as you guys hold them and you're not like here, check it, and then like you know like I would just bring a big lens. There you go. You big, like big lens. Like a like a yeah, like a really, really big one or like see, a like a telephoto lens. Like a That's gonna give me the perfect opportunity while you're focusing behind the lens to put the creepy crawly on you while you're mm. posing to no, get I'm shot. Gonna, I'm gonna put bells on everyone so I know exactly <laughs> where everybody's at. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. You, the Robert had to deal with me in Costa Rica getting super excited for what this guy he called Costa Rican Mike, um, who like we were trekking in the jungle trying to find specific species of dart frogs and insects and all sorts of cool stuff. And it was like, a, I don't know. It was, it was a long, long day. It was a long day. And it's almost like midnight. We're trekking in the middle of the jungle and I'm super stoked. And Robert's like over it, like found multiple species. I'm like diving into bushes and yeah, the snakes are know, in the trees. It's pitch black. I'm it's all like about it. Midnight. Well, so that, that's the life, man. That's what we do yeah. every expedition, just going out till 1 a.m. and mm-hmm. finding cool stuff. Yeah. And sometimes it's hilarious. Like we go out with this one guy and he we literally we could get it, we had a recipe to find a new species. There's literally this guy had to go out and he had to get high and when he and he we'd find one animal and then he'd and we'd hike, be hiking for like, I don't know, 30 minutes or something. We'd find one thing and then he'd go back to the camp and guaranteed the next thing was a new species. This happened three times really? in a row. Like we're like, all right, man, you, you toke up, and then we got to come out, but you got to leave after the first one because we really <laughs> want to find something new. <laughs> God, that was funny. Uh, now, who gets the name of the new species? Like, did you name any after him? Yeah, good question, man. So sometimes, like academics, want really the the lead author is going to usually kind of come up with a name, okay. and it's kind of a, it's a faux pas to name it after yourself so i can't my my one of my life goals and anybody listening who wants to really give me a great gift uh i want a genus of lizard to be named tregosaurus if that's at all possible um, <laughs> but, but i can't do that myself that's so awesome but uh so you can't name it after yourself but the new academics want it to be based on you know the locality or something to do with the animal a characteristic which makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. uh, conservationists lean more towards uh we're we're we want money so we we need money to continue saving the species so there's this compromise of well let's auction off the naming rights and with that we can then actually protect habitat to save the species so we've done it in bangladesh we do it in ecuador so we we actually have these auctions where you can say okay the highest bidder gets to name it after their dog or whatever they want as long as it's not vulgar or something though somebody did name a sicilian after trump which could be arguably vulgar but <laughs> you can't decide. You don't get to decide what it is. So um, that's kind of a new. A, it, it's not new. It's been going on for maybe fifteen years, but it's really been catching steam. So we can get like ten grand for uh, somebody, like s- some donor naming a frog, and that's fantastic for us. That's actually really cool. cool. Yeah, it works out, and it, I mean, it's named after a family. It doesn't have anything to do with the actual frog, but. Uh, you know, this is in this day and age. Yeah, we don't really have much of a choice. Mm-hmm. Now, okay, so like, so speaking, like, just speaking of creepy crawlies and herps and stuff, like, who? I mean, just because this is kind of like an uncharted territory for me, and I just don't know, but who would be considered like the rock star in the herp world? 
Like, is there like a like a big hitter? Oh, there, there's several, and they, they come and go. It depends on you know, like if there's a turtle guy, is it a is it a lizard guy? Mm-hmm. Um, so and it's and then you can get into like is is it a hemiphylodactylus or is it a, like so? Oh, there's plenty okay. of big names out there. Nobody. Like there was a guy Lee Grismer. He had a TV show for a while, um, so maybe people know him. But um, yeah, big re- famous researcher for herps that's known. I don't like know. anybody you like. You like you're like oh my god he's here kind of thing. Oh, I could have that with a couple people, cool. uh, a couple researchers. We've met. I mean, most of these guys are really approachable, and they're. I mean, yeah. we meet them at conferences, and they're amazing people and. Andrew Neil Doss, he's a big guy and he's super kind and very open. Like, so you get to actually collaborate with, when I first started coming up as a researcher, like to be able to meet these guys and then like actually have these conversations with them was, was really cool. Like it was awesome. same with the photography world too. And just, that was something, something that really brought me into the conservation world in general was, it was, it was just immediately apparent. It was my tribe. Like it was a bunch mm-hmm. of generally egoless people that wanted to help wildlife in really cool ways. And we could, collaborate and just and have fun doing something meaningful so that was that was a really cool aspect of conservation and i I really can't find that anywhere else i I haven't been able to at least you know that's actually a a good segue there we didn't talk about already um was what path did you take to get to where you are today i mean you know we've all in conservation there is no one single road um you know what what was your path scott how did you get here Oh, it was the traditional, non-traditional approach (laughs) (laughs) because we all come at it at a different way. Right. So it's, there is no, there, there's becoming more actual traditional approaches. If you go take that, I think it's, is it Oxford that has the master's conservation leadership degree? Yeah. And Um, then there's the, uh, what is it? The upcoming conservation leadership program, the one that's out of the state department slash, um, it's out of DC trying to think about that one it's like yeah and, and wild team uk has some like programs too so there, there are like more targeted approaches now but for me and i think the vast majority of conservationists you just kind of kind of fell into it like so i was a kid and i like all of us just loved animals and you kind of it stuck with you and uh i remember going freshman year of college i was planning on being an entomological systemicist i wanted i dreamt of just going to the amazon and finding new species of bug and putting it on pinning it on a board like that was just I loved it. And then I talked, I went to work at an entomological lab and they were like, Hey, this, this really famous entomologist right down the lab, like he curates a museum at the U of A and let's go talk to him. I was like, Whoa, really? All right, let's go talk. And I was like almost shaking with enthusiasm. And I was like, yeah, I really want to do what you're doing. And he's like, Oh, don't do that. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> like, no, that's um, you don't get it. There's no money in it. So it's like, you're just going to struggle for the rest of your life. I was like, Oh man, that's a bummer. So I, like, so I started asking myself what to do. I was like, oh, well, I'll try marine biology. And I was like, well, there's a lot of competition for marine biology. They get a little bit more money, but it's still not really tenable for a lot of people. If you're actually like, I had this mentality of just making a decent wage. And, uh, and then I was like, all right, well, I guess I'm going to do genetic engineering because I thought genetics had really interesting questions and they were meaningful and, uh, and it's still kind of like you do wildlife genetics and stuff. So I did that and then I went crazy in a lab during a PhD, during a PhD program and, uh, quit as soon as I got a, like the day after one of my friends in the wildlife photography community had offered me a consulting job in the States. And he told me what it paid and what I was doing. I was basically going to get paid good money to, to go birding all day. And I was like, okay, well, that's 
my path done. So I, t- I told my PI the next day, I was like, I'm sorry, I'm out. Like, and then I went on this path of having like a surplus of time and funding, personal funding to go do things. And I started traveling the world and meeting the guy Caesar Roman in Bangladesh and started doing work with the biodiversity group, doing conservation research in all these countries, leading expeditions. And like, it's really just this huge privilege of being able to have the time and the resource to be able to pay for these opportunities to go and, and learn things like in the field from really knowledgeable people. And, uh, but I, it's, it's ironic because I recall in college, there was a conservation biology uh, class taught by Kevin Bonine. I, I loved him. He was my herpetology uh, professor too, but I had no interest in the class at the time. I didn't really know what it was, I guess. And this was back in like 20, 2008, I guess. Yeah. And, um, and, but then here I am as a conservationist through and through. And so it's, it, it kind of snuck up on me, I guess. I just kind of fell into it and, and I keep falling more into it, I guess. <laughs> Can't stop. And it's my whole life. It's one of those things like where you start on the path, you know, like same thing for me, catching lizards and snakes and creepy crawlies as a kid and neighbors calling, you know, calling my parents to have me come rescue something out of their backyard or whatever it was. Um, you find these life mentors along the way who save you time and catch your direction and kind of pivot you where like, that classic like oh don't do that that's not actually a real thing or you'll never survive in the money aspect doing this or this is this is something you could do and you you work with those mentors you collaborate you learn from dozens of different conservationists from dozens of different project types and backgrounds and then you get to this point and you realize you're still going to be wearing dozens of hats in a day, in a week, in a year. <laughs> There's not really a conventional path even working in the field uh, for the for those of us who are under this mega, you know, the mega threshold of like either you're, you know, the point of contact for a university and you're vested or you're the, you know, um, the veterinarian at one spot or something like that. There's everybody else is, is doing multiple different things to keep moving and keep keep alive yeah i tell people though like i, I mean i get this question occasionally how how to get into the, the field because it looks glamorous and it is a really i mean i it's the best job i could ever imagine despite it being going through suffering university every day of my life but it you know if you have enough dedication and the passion and maybe some tools to deal with the suffering and the stress then I mean, you can make it happen. It's it's just you you got to stick with it and you got to keep it open. You got to say yes to opportunity. I mean, I said yes to every single opportunity that came my way for a long time, and it was same. I mean, I burnt out hard on it, but it I couldn't have not done it. I feel like it's you, mm-hmm. you just and I got a super widespread of experience, like and that you couldn't get any way other like you couldn't get in college or anything. And it's just about being like, okay, yes, I will go to Bangladesh and pretend to know how to do this surgery on pythons and figure it out as I go and start a conservation organization without knowing anything about it. And like, just, just diving in head first and making sure that you're confident enough to follow through. Then, then that's how the magic happens, I guess. Yeah. There's a, there's the, the road of sacrifice is, is what you got to be ready for. Cause uh, it's not like, you know, you're coming up in the tech industry and you're going to get these really nice uh, living accommodations and well-paid internships or anything like that. A lot of this, you're going to be putting your own money forward to 
work alongside somebody or you're going to collaborate or you're going to mentor or volunteer and you're going to get into more projects and you're going to have to say yes to things because I think a lot of folks go, I want to work with this species, but they don't realize like that's not how most of the industry works, at least where you have to like you work with multiple different species, whether you're in the vet, the research, the anti-poaching, the conservation, you know, land management side. There's multiple things going on. It's not like I only work with this species. Like that's really kind of rare and kind of in a specific niche of only certain things. Um, saying yes to everything allows you to get experience all over the place. But coming back to you're going to have to prepare for the sacrifices. Um, it's not an easy road. Um, I know, Scott, you and I have talked about before, like I, instead of I, I like I gave up my my entire 20s to to all conservation efforts it's still obviously mid 30s going into conservation efforts everything you know whereas friends and family bought houses settled down you know did all all of those things and i was living in different countries and i would never give it up though but those are the sacrifices where you kind of now you're like it'd be nice to own a house if i could actually own a house but i can't afford to own a house you know like (laughs) or what country should I live in? And cause what's the most advantageous for projects and, you know, the life of the nonprofit itself and, um, coming from the ground up complete scratch without being, uh, you know, I didn't come from any wealthy family background at all. Um, you have to create, maintain and sustain it. Uh, and that's a lot of work. It's a, it's a, there's a lot of work yeah. to get to it labor of love and a lot of passion. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's been, I mean, I, I've been conservationist like professionally for over 10 years now, but I still don't get paid. I've never gotten paid a dime from any conservation program. And I will be the last person to get paid as the executive director of this organization because I have to pay everybody else first because not many people are as insane as me to be able to, to volunteer every minute of their life to wildlife conservation. So, and you have no, Mike, you're the same way. So it's, so then I have to go move to a cheaper country to make sure that I can live. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of things you got to consider with trying to do this. But again, like I, I'd want to move to that country anyway. So it works out. And exactly. Not, no complaint. <laughs> it's just, uh, it's just a very interesting life. And it, it's always, everyone around me is always just like, yeah, you're, it's always a little different working with you. Like, so there's always 12 contingencies and like, it can't just be simple. Can it? I'm like, nope. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I know how that goes. Um, it, it's, it's, and, and to your point too, like the, the getting paid factor, you know, I, I know your day will come, especially with your skill set. Um, what I'm seeing now, which is, it's actually a breath of fresh air in some of our side of the industries, is um, the project scope is developed with the mindset of a livable standard, um, which isn't always easy to do, but the mentality wasn't even there, you know, 15 years ago. And it's like, if it becomes too difficult for the players who have experience that are strategic and that are efficient and effective to the point where they actually do formally burn out, we actually lose massive amounts of conservation efforts and, and, and uh, initiatives if one of those key players decides I've had enough. Um, oh, absolutely. Because everything they're tied to is gone. Like everything, everything. All, the, 
all the clout that they had this is just yep. just wasted 10 years of work and you're like oh, now i gotta find somebody else and that's gonna take five years just to find somebody else that's gonna have the same skill set to be able to implement the programs and be able to trust them and be able to yeah everything else yeah it's, it's, so focusing on individuals and supporting individuals yeah like yeah. ourselves we're not immune to that so <laughs> yeah yeah i've i've been lucky i've been i've um obviously i get paid by gcf it's part-time because gcf is not recovered fully from the covid wave of economic challenges and issues um but i'm thankful that it's part-time still and then my other i'm getting paid to be you know um a professional fixer guide field medic i'm working in um production for film content and working behind the camera um, working in front of the camera <laughs> and then also i'm you know uh, on assignment working as a conservation a paid conservation director per for project for other NGOs. And I'm, I'm lucky now that my multiple years of multiple backgrounds is, is culminating to this. Um, but it's still challenging because it's not like one job, one payroll. I'm still working like 80 to 100 hours a week on GCF um, <laughs> and putting in, you know, getting paid on other things uh, per task and assignment, um, which makes life livable but it would be nice to consolidate it into one silo uh, of income and that income being enough to be a livable wage um, oh i could do so much more with the organization if i could just focus on the biodiversity group and just oh my gosh yeah it, it'd be, right that would be just a dream just like hey pay me a little bit just so i can only focus on this oh like the world would be a different place but i i simply can't like <laughs> the world won't let me this made something we got like a nf we got some nft projects that we're releasing soon so hopefully in the nft market picked up a little bit lately so we'll see if that's gonna support us we got like a what the you know that skeptical snake uh meme yeah the blind snake and they, they always draw the arms on it and stuff uh yeah. our buddy john hakeem had taken that photo and uh he'd done some work in bangladesh with us so we're actually I uh, just got an invite to Foundation App, so it's an invite-only NFT platform, and we're gonna sell the original photo of the meme with the backstory and like in a couple other photos that on either side, so that and and those meme photos go for quite a bit, like the burning house girl, like the look the evil girl that was like looking at like smiling as the house is burning. Let's go for like oh, tens of thousands of dollars. So hopefully these. And we have like a 10,000 K profile, 10 K profile pick set and some other like gift things that we're doing. So we just, we have, we're having to be creative with fundraising, which is also fun. Um, but it's always non-traditional approaches to try to achieve anything. Um, oh, trust me. I know how that goes. <laughs> we've got, we've got a pretty big launch coming up here too. I don't want to, don't want to jinx it, but we've got, it's going to be a massive launch and it's what I'm holding my breath for to get some relief again as I'm, uh, wearing three or four different hats again <laughs> trying to keep things moving um just for the daily and weekly cost of my life um but Wait, nfts came into our court oh nice it's we've got um so kaita peterson and his crew followed us in um south africa just just recently they followed um at the tail end of our some of our instructors work and then we were doing some new applications of different programs and so they filmed a rhino conservation documentary around us. They got Jeep on board to sponsor them for their episode. 
costs. And then they got um, YouTube backed it. And um, Brave Wilderness slash Kyrie Peterson is a 19 million viewer platform um, on their channel, which is insane. Um, but the big thing is, is we've locked in one of our next phases and it, it falls into three different timelines that we've been working on. One has been developing and sustaining anti-poaching efforts in this entire region with 17 different reserves. It's super, it's, it's a very biodiverse area in the Eastern Cape of South Africa. And then we're going to be doing land acquisition and rewilding. And then we're going to be doing corridor building between different reserves to defragment the habitat space and interconnect genetics and bloodlines between these different animals. So all of that's coming in with this film project and the film project is going to be the celebrity launch pad for pledges and the celebrity launch pad pledge commitment work is going to be done by Coyote Peterson as an ambassador for GCF. So he's talking to his celebrity network and the pledged uh, companies that already brand corporately with them to buy in on the pledge platforms for this land acquisition, fence line dropping, rewilding, a whole massive program. And um, it's the first phase of a 20-year program that we've all been, like when I say we all, there's like about, I think, 40, 40 different reserves and um, about six NGOs in this massive project working towards this goal. So like we all are at the threshold for the launch now and we're starting to launch with the bridge connectors between the reserves now. And it's this huge, huge platform project that we're working on. And Kaidi Peterson's going to launch that. Uh, June 11th is the, the, the release date for the Rhino Conservation documentary. And that's going to be the start of the fundraising road. Um, so that's been huge, doing dude. a lot of back work. Yeah, it's, it's, I'm excited for it. Um, I, I really am, but I'm also nervous. Cause like, I'm sure you've had people come forward and be like, yeah, we're going to raise this money for you. Not saying this is at all. Kyrie Peterson, Kyrie Peterson has done everything he said he's going to do. But in the past we've had like other companies, other organizations, and it doesn't always follow through what they promised or it doesn't always come to the level of which we hoped expectations um, don't meet reality sometimes yeah yeah this one is a little bit different there's some big names again i don't want to i don't want to spoil it too much and i don't want to jinx it uh because they're uh, the big names are big <laughs> so but that stuff will be out soon and so hopefully that'll get us all back on pace and um Maybe we, in that sense, even with this biodiversity stuff, that would be some, another excuse to see if we can get you out on some stuff, dude. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, bring me out now. You got money. Real cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Once it, once it starts coming in. So, yeah, it's it's there's some good stuff there. Um, but that comes to the unconventional thing again. You know, like working on a film project in reverse and then coming around and like, all the community conservation stuff and the nights of the round table with all these different reserves and the anti-poaching side and the vocational trainings and all these other things. And then, okay, cool. Someone jumped in with the ability to give us a platform. We couldn't, we, we couldn't physically access prior. And, um, last time Kyrie Peterson joined our crew for fundraising, um, they helped us raise, I think it was 60, $67,000, which is massive. Um, and what we did is we yeah, really funded cool. the operations of, I think 
so one, two, three, four, six different GCF key project partners and project partner sites. So we kept something like 30, 36 or 38 people employed who had lost all funding and lost all donor money during COVID. And they are all centric uh, rhino habitat areas with anti-poaching units who are locally trained, hired, and of course trained by GCF and supplied with equipment. But it ended up becoming like a massive life raft for a lot of um, our key project sites, players, people who are doing great work in the field. Um, so I have high hopes because um, that's just a that was just the initial one, and that was before we even filmed the Rhino Conservation Special, where you know we're the focus of it. <laughs> so, oh, great, man! Happy for uh, you. Yeah, uh, hold my breath. Hold my breath. Well, don't hold it too but long. Yeah, breathe, breathe, man. <laughs> <laughs> breathe, breathe. Now, and then you're going to go out to South Africa uh, here in a couple of weeks, right, dude? Yeah, we're heading out. Uh, we're finally, girlfriend got done with her contract and I'm done with mine. So we're, we're free finally. So we're going to be starting to travel. We're hitting up the uh, Explorers Club dinner to try to find some in- people interested in sporting programs. And then uh, after that, I'll be wearing a tux for the first time ever as a field cool. biologist. <laughs> Trying to get a tie that actually looks like a snake. I can't find one. But uh, and then we're going. Then we're going to Africa. Yeah, like late May. We're gonna hit up. Well, we're trying to help your friend. We'll see if anybody's available. But we're gonna kind of cruise around. It's the last place, last country or continent I haven't uh, haven't been to. So we're gonna be trying to just see all the. I left the best for last. Africa, just lions, tiger, or (laughs) lions, elephants, rhinos, all the big five. It's gonna be fun. Um, but we're also doing a volunteer thing for uh, her as a nurse. We're just going to go. I'm shooting a photo story for this organization that does uh, cleft palate repairs. and But then we're getting hooked up with some like lodges and conservation organizations in Zimbabwe also through that. So you never know what these things are going to end up connecting you with. Oh, yeah. Cool. That's going to be super cool. I Prepare to be addicted to Africa. That's what I've got to say. Just start planning your next trip already. <laughs> Oh, I know. I mean, you're I, remember, love it. I remember hitting somebody up in, in Sri Lanka on a, on a safari and he was so unenthused. He's like, well, it's not Botswana. And I was like, oh, you should like, really like you're not Jeez. impressed with what's happening right now. Like I was just enthralled. I was like, oh, my God, there's so much behavior everywhere. Like there's just photo after photo. It was just like it was just handed to you. And it's like that's nothing compared to Africa. I'm like, wow, what is Africa going to be like? Jeez. Oh, yeah. Photographer. Yeah, as a photographer, I mean, Robert, you know, like you can't even carry like the amount of stuff you need to carry is a little comical sometimes just to get all the different shots because you don't know what's actually going to happen right in front of you. Mm -hmm. So you got to be ready. So a lot of people roll with like two or three cameras on the ready, like baseline. And it's crazy to watch because you'll see like the massive lenses to the short, fast, low light, you know, fix wide angle. I mean, it's it's pretty funny because like so much stuff happens out there. Yeah, it's for amazing. real. It's going to be fun. And I like that kind of challenge. It's, <laughs> it's going to be great. Oh yeah. We can get out to Robert, DRC you, you can... together too. That'd be cool. Yeah. That's it's on the list. I think comically, I, I think I've told you guys both this, but I don't think the viewers have heard this before, but I have a, I have a standing invite to the DRC every single year and it's for ranger training. Um, it's just so far project budgets and scope of conservation impact haven't made sense yet. So like it's always at the, like this, the, the oddest time or a short window that doesn't work with other training systems. And 
we've got these invites to several different places and um yeah it's on the list there's some cool stuff there that's that's like that's that's deep deep continent um you know kind of feels like traveling back in time going to some of those areas uh yeah we almost ended up but then the the organization we support there paradis de supermates they uh he was describing what, what was going to happen. We were going to have like 10 days and eight of those days was going to be on motorbike just, just cool. to get to the, like to the ceremony with the chiefs to create this community conservation area. And it was like, it, you know, it's just probably not worth my time to, I'm not going to add anything to this. So we'll come another time when I have actually more time to spend to be able to, that country takes, it's going to take a while to enjoy. Yeah, that's hundred percent. You don't want to short yourself on those trips. They're just, it's such a, long trek and it's so cool that you don't want to be like okay i blinked and i missed it yeah, right. so, <laughs> man robert you got more questions i know you you uh scott and i've been so excited we you haven't yeah. said much for a little bit there well, the only thing the only the big one that i would like to ask scott and this is more of a personal from a herp person to a non-herp person is let me see if i can't find my question where is it at uh, it says if I was if you were going to hand me a snake to hold, what snake would it be, and which part do I touch? Rosie boa. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah, that's a good choice. You could try to get bit by a rosy boa, and you won't get bit. Yeah, and they're they're like they're super slow. They're kind of girthy, so they're it's really easy to hold. They're, you're not really gonna you're not gonna hurt them very easily. So it's good on the snake too. But yeah, okay. it's. In general, you you, want, you always want two points of contact on a snake because if you hold okay. it up, you see people pick up a snake by like the tip of the tail. Yeah. Don't do that. It, it's like you think about the actual from the snake. You're holding up the whole body by like the last few vertebrae. You actually dislocate vertebrae pretty easily by doing that, oh. especially if it's not a climbing snake. If it's yeah. a snake that's always on the ground and it's not like has the musculature to be climbing up the trees and stuff. I mean, you, you really can wreck a snake doing that. So uh, you, the idea is not to to hurt it if you're trying to admire the animal you don't want to just like leave it with dislocated vertebrae so you want to put like a hand kind of if it's not something that's gonna bite you you put like a third down the front from the front of the body and then and have it like in the other hand kind of the two-thirds of the way down just hold it like that and just kind of let it crawl on you just like put one hand in front of the other as it's going yeah um if it's venomous you generally want to have a hook on it and then just kind of and make sure it's on the head side of it and have, you can have the tail on the other side but that's all stuff that mike can teach you too but uh, sure. rosy bows, they're they're around here, Mike. Robert. You're you're on Cali, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, to get Mike to show you a rosy bow. That's a super great intro snake to hold. Oh man, uh, Robert, you're in. You're even in more luck because I have two rosy bows at home. They're two rescues. There you go. So you know, you... it's you know, I was thinking about it. This. Uh, okay. It's it's, it's great. <laughs> like you, you can't. Once you hold them in, they're like sweet looking. They, I mean, you can't be scared of these little guys. Okay. yeah they're right, super then, nice okay i believe you um, they don't even i don't think they usually don't musk on you too much either like wait musk no yeah usually the snake's first go-to is to to shit all over Let you and then rip. bite where or either bite first or shit on you but then it always gets rubbed in the wound somehow and you always end up getting cellulitis but um, <laughs> oh, great <laughs> <laughs> okay. and smell horrendous king oh, snakes no. musk uh, garter snakes oh, oh. Terrible. It's stick with you. I'll stick with photographing them from afar. You can do that too. <laughs> and then, just my other follow-up question, just because you know you you have such a, a really cool background, um, but it would just be like, what's your favorite place to travel to? Not 
directly associated with work or where, where, where do you, I know you mentioned South Africa, but where else, or Africa, but where else would you enjoy vacationing to? Man, you know, I, it's, it's a hard question. I traveled the world looking for a place that I wanted to kind of settle down at. And, and that has a mixture between like biodiversity and, and general cultural vibe. Yeah. And I tend to vibe more with Latin culture than anything else. It's kind of just free and colorful. And yeah. so I lived in the Caribbean for a while and I really haven't found a place better than that. Like Flores was almost had kind of a Caribbean vibe to it, but, um, and it's in Wait, you're on Flores? You're in Flores? Yeah. I hit up Komodo, Rincha and Flores, uh, a couple islands around there because we got stranded because the airline canceled on us. Actually, they oh, went that's out of business. Right. Didn't us. That's right. Really Flores is really cool. That's a cool little yeah, hub. People were so nice and like it, and it was a totally different vibe than the surrounding islands too. Yeah, it, that's a that's a that's a little hidden gem right there. Absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, you can go. The diving around there is insane. Oh my but gosh. So, I mean, it's the amazing. diving in Indonesia. I wish Latin America had diving like Indonesia, and then it would be just hands down. Just yeah. we're, we're looking at Panama. That's I'm, we're actually actively cool. scoping out Panama for a place to literally live on vacation. In. Um, it's cheap and it's got two oceans surfing and all kinds of activities and tons of wildlife. So that's what it's kind of what I'm we're gonna, looking at. I'm going to come visit you for sure, because we, we talked about this great length, length. There's all the the islands down there, the little tiny islands with all the different dart frog species that I'm going to go nerd out. Hardcore. Yeah, the Bocas del Toro. Yeah, there. It's we got to hit all those up, and we even like the place we got Airbnb'd out for the uh, later this year. We're spending three months there, and there's like a kayak. There's an island that you can kayak to. It's like 15 minutes away, and it's just like this amazing tropical paradise. And you're just like, really? I can. It's just unreal. So that's that's really where we're looking at. But um, so I mean, it really depends. Also, for travel, it depends on what you want. Because like Australia was incredible. Just absolutely everything about it was just amazing when we visited there. We did massive road trips and stuff, and yeah. animals are all just super tame and tons of diversity, and the people were great. And so, like, I, that's also really high up on my list. But in um, Bangladesh, you go for the stories and the impact. Like, if I really want to make a difference, you know, you, you go there. So, it kind of depends on what you want to do. Yeah, that's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's Where do you? Where's your favorite place, Robert? Oh gosh, I, I mean. I've always wanted to go to like the Congo or the DRC would also be in sick, but I, I also really like to non-work related. I kind of really want to try uh, like Egypt mm. uh, or, or Lebanon would be kind of fun. I got a buddy in Lebanon. He keeps trying to get me to come out. Interesting. Just to, answer, like, yeah. just, to, just to try something, you know, but I mean, I, but I mean, I love, I love Africa and Indonesia is super cool. Um, but I'd probably say like Egypt or Lebanon would be where I haven't been. Have you, Robert, have you seen anything in the, like the South American, um, temples or ruins or anything like that? Yeah, dude. I was just watching this one video that were saying that they just started like discovering like this really cool, like civilization that was kind of eaten up by the Amazon rainforest and they're like rediscovering it and finding all these really cool, like architecture and stuff. That'd be really sick. Yeah. I gonna say, cause I mean, honestly, for, so that's for me, like going on vacation, I want to do more of like south south and central america yeah because like i mean one it's a lot closer and i've spent mm -hmm. so much time so far on the other side uh, i guess but it like for like the, the temple factor and like the cool ruins and the biodiversity in the jungle uh, it'd be so cool yeah, i mean in our, our work in ecuador too like you you step foot in that jungle and you find something new i mean mm -hmm. it's just and i got more friends down there than i do in the states and just so 
it's kind of cool just having a bunch of places around the world that you could literally fly to tomorrow and just hang out and have a good time. Yeah. Like you don't have to plan anything. Everybody just welcomes you in. And mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's a huge bonus to being a conservationist. Oh yeah. Uh, Scott, I got to ask, are you a fan of Anthony Bourdain? Yeah. I, I didn't watch him too much, but I, I, I feel like what I had watched, he was a pretty authentic dude. I liked him. Yeah. I, the, I always loved, uh, his, his show, no reservations and all that factor, but like the aspect of, living in the moment at that location, like in, enjoying doing what the locals do and their food and the, the, you know, the beverages and the celebrations. Like if you can take off anywhere in the world, the real way to enjoy it to me is to dive in head first, no reservation style, know where you're going and obviously don't do anything dangerous, but like going to a cool place and just living like a local and experiencing their life is so cool like that vibe you were talking about like you know if you can jump into panama and just roll into one of the coastal towns grab an airbnb and hit the local taco shop and you know that's a huge start already and then like go from there instead of like you know a rigid daily hour by hour schedule of i will be here and i will be here like you miss so much that way um yeah stay in one place there's a lot to be said about it and you and i would never go and just be at some ritzy resort because you're isolated. It's like you're, you're, you're just in this little enclave of the West still in whatever country you're in. And it's like, why, why'd you go to another country if you're just going to not, if you're just going to experience more of the same. So yeah. I guess I'm not judging on it. It's just not for me, but um, so I go cheap place and you got to spend more than like two weeks in an area too, because after those first two weeks, that's when the real cool stuff starts happening. That's when you meet the people. That's when you get the inside news. That's when you can mm-hmm. go and, like actually get all the, the non-traditional kind of experiences. And so spending a month somewhere like the locals do. And even if you're like a conservationist and you're trying to like implement a program, you better do what the locals do because they're not going to respect you if you don't. If you're always walking around Bangladesh with a fork and you're not eating with your hands and you're, you're not eating like the traditional food, they're going to be like, well, you're not one of us. Like why are, why are we going to embrace you to do any work with us. So you, you, you literally kind of have to do what the locals are doing. Even just to understand their perspective when you're trying to implement programs and alternative livelihoods, like you got to understand what, how they suffer and how they enjoy and everything else. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. That's absolutely on point. Um, Well, gentlemen, I feel like we've had a pretty good conversation for today's episode. Um, Scott, we got to have you back on again. We got to talk like, we got to nerd out on some more species and, and maybe actually a perfect catch up is a recap of your South Africa trip and adventure and what species you end up seeing. Um, Cause that'll be a pretty fun combination. Uh, you gotta, you gotta start like a herp checklist checklist and I got to give you, um, I got it. Well, you got, you got in contact with Ty um, Tyrone and unfortunately he's gonna be in Cape town, but if you can get a hold of one of his books or sorry, his book he just released not one of them um that would be cool if you go through the kuzula natal area but if you're going to be up a little bit further north it'll at least you'll still have some of the same species to uh go looking for in the reptile and amphibian world so i'm excited for you because it's it's gonna you know ruin you for back lack of a better term like you're gonna be so excited you can't wait to come back um I just have to say, from my experience, don't underestimate those dang mambas. They live up to all folklore. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I am. I'm a little scared of the Mamba. I gotta admit. I, I don't know if it's not worth the risk to to manhandle one of those things. I gotta say, I'm I'm probably in the same mindset as you, Scott. Like I'm comfortable grabbing many different species with hook tongs and whatnot, hands specific some some species. But the black mamba, this, this last trip, we were working so much with them. I, the entire time, not only because I was the medic, but also one of the handlers, like if it got past somebody, I had the snake hook with me at all times. I was, <laughs> I was so nervous because the that dang black mamba that we had um, moving off of one of the property sites, um, it had bit more than one dog and we were relocating it. So it didn't get killed. And it was this whole thing. Um, it was like looking yeah, into I'm, a I'm fine with cobras and any, any viper that's not nothing big. There was an angry opossum in the middle of the street yesterday that like it was on the busy street and I just ran out with like just instinct to, didn't think about it at all and just grabbed it and took it off the road and this thing's angry as hell and I no there's like no hesitation. But Mamba? Ugh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna give it some dude, wide berth. I felt I felt like I was getting sized up by a snake version of a, a velociraptor that thing like counted us out in the room and like identified its targets as like, Oh my gosh. And it was a tight, like brick walled room stuff. I'm like, Oh man, this I, I don't want to yell. I don't, I don't want to be like clever girl when it, it like goes and attacks me from the side. <laughs> yeah, dude. That's what I felt like. I felt like all the, all the Jurassic park quotes would have been appropriate. I'm like, Oh gosh, this thing is just sizing us all up. Like, no. Yeah. So, but everything that. else, um, don't forget about the stilettos who can bite through their own jaw down there, too. You got several different species. Um, and there's, there's a, I, the rule, the rule for the, the small black snake species is there's five melt your finger off layers from mild discomfort, comfort, and swelling to melt your finger completely off. And there's five of this, these little snake species that all look almost identical. Yeah, that's uh, I'm definitely gonna have to make sure I know what I'm doing there because I don't. My African knowledge is not that deep, so we're gonna we're gonna wing it. See how it goes. Yeah, I yeah. For me, as as a general rule, there I'm so cautious. Like if I can get it quickly and I have the snake hook, I do it. But I always treat everything venom as if it's venomous until I can and clarify it outside of that. Because some of them are, if you've only seen them in the books or you've only seen a photo of them from one angle, it can be really hard if you're out with like, you know, headlamps and, or it's in the brush and it's quick. So it's I know, you know, what, what I'm talking about. yeah, I mean, Australia is so, all lapids except for like two, right? So everything is a cobra esque animal. <laughs> so you just got to assume everything's venomous. And don't forget too, with the cobras, there's the spitting cobra. Um, even though I am fully aware of the reason I say this is, my brain was like spitting cobra one of the times I was going towards one to grab a photo. And my my whole brain was spitting cobra, spitting cobra. And it was fine until I shifted and then it spit. And then I realized spitting cobra, even though my brain's saying spitting cobra, like the whole faction of it spits took my brain like multiple checkpoints to realize I'm still within reach um, of this dang snake. Yeah, right. That is <laughs> so, kind of a trip, huh? It was such a, it's such a weird mindset to continually remind yourself because you're so used to like, oh, snake, this distance, I'm outside of it. Oh, that's right. This one spits. Good God. 
Oh, and also while it's spinning so, at me, there might be a leopard trying to eat me right now. So <laughs> there's also that aspect. Yes. You know, leopard, buffalo, mind the buffalo. They're the they're your uh, your most common, unassuming friend that's not going to be welcome to the party. Um, you know, there's also that's some so, good stuff there. It's so different there because, you know, in Asia, you got leopards, but I'm not really too concerned about it. And tigers are very few and far between. So you got some elephants, which are kind of sneaky, but you, you can hear them coming in the forest. But in South America doing field work, there's nothing that's going to eat you either. So there's really like... I've never had to deal with massive land predators that I'm actually prey while trying to herp. So that's going to add a whole new layer of excitement. Oh yeah. And mind the bodies of water for crocs. Treat every body of water as if it has crocs. That's the rule. Yeah, sure. Kind of like Australia, you know, kind of that, that mentality. I'll come back on the podcast and tell you what I forgot and what I lost. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited for you, man. That's going to be so cool. It's going to be yeah, so cool. Random. So, well, cool. This is right, great. Guys, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it's been a really. fun one. I hope everybody who tuned in for today's uh, extended episode uh, enjoyed it as much as we did. And um, we'll get ourselves scheduled, scheduled for another one. Um, and yeah, Scott, we got to see. Even if uh, if you got another friend you want to pull on, we can we can chat with some of your friends from the field. Um, oh, I got plenty of those. Not. Yeah, well, you'll be you'll be hearing from me. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So um, I think with that, guys, I'm going to close out the episode and we'll, we'll, we'll plan for the next one in the near future. I dig it. Sounds great. Thanks, guys. Awesome. It's nice cool. to meet you, Scott. Absolutely. Nice to meet you too, Robert. Scott, always a pleasure. Um, all right, everybody. And uh, so thanks for tuning in to another episode of Coffee and Conservation, this time with my friend Scott Trigeser and, of course, Robert Pike running the comedy with all the questions here. Um, until next time, we will catch you guys for the next episode. Don't forget to subscribe to the, the Spotify, uh, hit like and subscribe to the Instagram page and or follow us on any other platform that you're listening from. It does us a lot of help. Uh, we'll catch you guys for the next episode.